Well, most of you would already be aware of the tragedy that took place this past early Sunday morning that impacted the lives of so many of our church family. Our dear sister, Kara Hanks, died, went to be with her Lord while serving at our student ministry retreat. And our sister, Kristen Nehemiah, was hospitalized, but, and it really is, miraculously and by God's grace, has been released and is with her family. The past seven days and nights have been the hardest. Our church family has ever walked through. Kara's extended family, students that were there, their parents, ministry volunteers, and really our entire church family have been in shock and sorrow on a level that most of us have never tasted before. The impact of this tragedy has been overwhelming with emotions and confusion and questions that have swirled around us and even raged inside of us. But I want you to know, because I saw it up close, firsthand, that these past seven days and nights have also been filled with the most amazing love and care and shared sorrow of burden bearing that only a church family can bring to a moment like this. Oh my, if you've ever had the unfortunate occasion to see how unbelievers go through this, to see how unbelievers respond, to see how their friends and family pull back because they don't know what to do with this and they are so uncomfortable. But to see the family of God lean in and to know, I had no doubts at this point in my life, is this real? But I'm telling you what, it is. Christians are different. There is a real hope. Christians pour themselves out. I've watched people just sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice beyond what is humanly able, supernatural, holding on to each other, loving each other, and putting their shoulder under this load and just groaning with each other. Oh, no doubt, we've lived through some of the darkest nights. But we've also seen some of the sweetest, brightest light in the very midst of the darkness. And one of the sweetest, brightest lights has been the Word of God. Oh, as I spent time with the family in the home and would try to get everyone's attention and get everyone to stop what they were doing, 
which was a lot. It's a big family, lots of adult kids, and they're all married, and they have 100 grandkids, and small group people, and friends, and loved ones. There are people scattered all over the house. When I would say, hey, I want to gather, and I want to read God's word, no one pushed back. No one said, Brad, we don't want to hear it right now. No one said, I've got something more important to do. Oh, I watched, oh, I watched people, young and old, of all ages, drink in God's word like thirsty, thirsty men and women in a parched land. I watched people close their eyes and tilt their head back. Oh, yes, there was still sobbing. There was still crying. There was still sniffling. But there was a holy, quiet, still. All of their activities ceased as people hung on God's word. And so does God's word have anything to say? At a time like this, is there anyone or anything that could even begin to anchor us in a storm of this magnitude? Oh, yes, there is. I think we can find hope and help from the book of Job. But even before I read the passage to you, I want you to understand that the book of Job is not some sanitized, toned-down, family-friendly version of suffering. Oh, no. I think there ought to be a warning label on the book of Job. Oh, because the book of Job, you guys, the book of Job is for people who have been shattered. Shattered. It's not for people who like everything tied up with a bow on it. For people who have been shattered. And so when I was younger, I didn't like the book of Job. I wanted Job to clean it up, say it all right, and please edit out some of those long, confusing tirades that you go off on, Job. Because quite honestly, it unnerved me and rattled the neat little edges of my oh-so-simple theology that only exposed and revealed there's nothing wrong with the book of Job. There was something wrong with Brad. I had not yet in my life ever been shattered or actually suffered, really suffered enough to even know what Job was going through or trying to express. Do you realize God's word tells us in Second Peter he's given us everything pertaining to life and godliness 
through the precious promises of his word. You realize there are some places in the Bible that are not there to fix it for us. They are there to validate and voice it for us. To, vo- to put words to what you're feeling. To voice it. To voice it so that you don't say, does anybody get it? Does anybody know what I'm going through? Does anybody know what this feels like? What kind of words so that you could say, oh, she gets it. He gets it. He gets it. Oh. You see, Job says things that are unsettling, gritty, and raw, but absolutely real to any one of you who has ever had your world turned upside down. And here's something else I want you to notice about the book of Job. God gave us one of the longest books in the Bible, 42 chapters, to describe, to put voice to what it feels like to express the anguish of having your world turned upside down. Christopher Ash, in his excellent commentary on Job, says this, quote, God has given us 42 chapters in Job. Why? Well, because when the suffering question and the where is God question and the what kind of God questions are asked, they cannot be answered on a postcard. We live in a sound bite day, right? Social media day. Praise God. God's word is not that way. The Holy Spirit didn't edit it down to sound bites. This kind of grief and darkness and sorrow cannot be put on a postcard. If we ask what kind of God allows this kind of world, God gives us a 42-chapter book. Far from saying the message of Job can be summarized on a postcard or in a tweet, God says, come with me on a journey, a journey that will take time. There is no instant answer. Job cannot be distilled. It's a narrative with a very slow pace and long delays. Why? Because there is no instant working through grief, no quick fix to pain, no message of Job in a nutshell. And so I'm turning to the book of Job this morning because it gives us the honest, raw, and real anguish of suffering, but it also gives us the example of Job and others in the midst of it. So now, I hope you have your Bibles with you. Turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1, I'm beginning in verse 13. Job chapter 1, verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you, while he was yet speaking, there came another 
and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you while he was yet speaking, there came another. And said, your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people. And they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground. And worshiped. And said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Skip to chapter 2, verse 9. Chapter 2, verse 9. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? The word evil is the Hebrew word rah. That can be translated evil or adversity. Most other translations say adversity. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, I want you to make note of that phrase, did not sin with his lips. Because if you choose to go with Job on this journey of 42 chapters, his lips say a lot of stuff that you might think, oh, you can't say that. You can't say that. God would just smite you. No, he won't. No, he won't. We've got Christians that expect more of other Christians in shattering circumstance than our father does. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So what can we learn from the book of Job today? Here's the first thing, and it's fairly obvious. Number one, our suffering, we have felt it. We've lived seven days, seven nights right on the edge of, right? Teetering. Ooh, We felt it. Our suffering has the potential to crush us into faithless despair. That's where you find Job's wife in verse 9. Look at it again. Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? She's looking at him sitting on the ash heap, scraping his sores with broken pottery. Curse God and die, Job. Now, I've heard messages where people are like, wow, find a better wife than that. Like, re-examine Proverbs 31. I hope that's not what I actually want to say to you today about Job's wife. To her credit, I don't want to be too hard on her today. Because she's just lost, try to fathom this, 10 children. They've lost their entire business and livelihood. And she's now watching her husband 
likely he may die, but at the very least, he'll never be the same. Her whole world has been turned upside down and shaken. But the other reason I don't want to be too hard on her is because I don't know how long she stayed in verse 9. Curse God and die. A day? A week? A month? Longer? We don't know because this is all we have on Job's wife. She makes this one verse cameo appearance. And she's never heard from again. We don't even have her name. She's just called Job's wife. And so verse 9, get this, verse 9 may be where she started, but not, might not be where she ended or where she stayed. And so I want this to be a source of hope and help for some of you here this morning that might be stuck in verse 9. Might be where you are right now, but I'd want you to know it doesn't have to be where you stay or where you end. Oh, but I want you to know even more. Get this. If you're in verse 9 this morning, to any degree, our God has not written you off. Our God's not written you off for having a verse nine moment. He can handle it and more than handle it. He is willing to love you through it, to hold on to you. You may be squirming and thrashing. He doesn't back off and say, until you get it together, he'll hold on to you and he will love you through it. He's big enough. He's good enough. And here's why I'm bringing this to you. Listen to me. Yes, we saw the family of God on display in a way I've never seen before. I've, seen, I've had glimpses of it. But don't make a mistake here. If you lose God or cut yourself off from God in the midst of shattering circumstances, you will have lost what matters most and you will have no anchor and sympathetic friends and Netflix and mood music and even psychotropic mood altering drugs that your family physician might prescribe for you, to you for a season cannot make up for the loss of God in your life in the midst of the darkness. Because that's where Satan wants you, my friend. That's where Satan wants me and the Glens and the Hanks and all of us. He wants us hopeless, in despair, and without God. Our world criticizes us from time to time. It's like, What's this trusting? So you trust in God. Oh, listen to me, you guys. I hope you realize in the dark with God is radically different than in the dark with no one 
and nothing. To glibly say, so you've got trust in God. Oh, my friend. We say, so we have trusting God in the dark. Oh, my goodness. It's not the same as nothing. And so I want you to see a very different response to the very same suffering. Very different response to the very same suffering. Number two, our suffering could press us into a place of anguished trust. Well, that's what you see with Job in contrast to his wife. An anguished trust. And I thought about that word carefully, the modifier. It's not a glib, cheery, well, praise the Lord anyway kind of trust. Oh, no. This is a painful, troubled trust. Look at me. But it is trust nonetheless. Oh, I want you to hear. We tend to think of trust and faith as having only one face. You look hopeful. You look joyful. You have peace. It's because you trust God and you have faith. Oh, yes. There's plenty of examples of that in the Bible. And there's times, I hope you've experienced that, that faith looks that way. I want you to understand there's more than one face to faith. There's more than one face to faith. And verse 10 is the hinge on which this kind of trust hangs. It's the hinge that swings us from faithless despair to anguished trust. And that hinge is fastened to the great door of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty that we believe is in control. Of all things, sovereignty. That's what anchors us and allows us to hold on to everything we know about God's goodness and love and wisdom, even in the midst of confusing, dark, shattering times. If you were there, you know Pastor Peter said it so well in the funeral on Friday. These shattering circumstances are not accidental They are providential and came through the hands of a loving, wise, good, sovereign father who chooses, who chooses when to allow, how much to allow shattering circumstances into our lives. One of the most unhelpful things you could say or do is to say one thing we know. And I've heard no one here in our church family say it, but I see it on the news sometimes with tragedy. And Christians mean well, but oh my goodness, you're not thinking about what you're saying and you're certainly not holding on to all of God's word. One thing we know, God had nothing to do with that. It's not what the Bible teaches Look at it. This is the truth. This is the doctrine that Job is clinging to in the ash heap with confusion 
and doubts and questions. Look at it again in Job 2.10. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? Oh, don't make a mistake. God is not the author of evil. He's not. But oh, he is sovereign over it. Good and evil. Valleys and mountaintop. Darkness and sunshine. Sovereign. And so I want you to think about this phrase, anguished trust. Because Webster defines the word anguish as extreme mental distress. Extreme mental distress. Is that not part of what these past seven days and nights have felt like for some of us? Oh, extreme mental distress. I couldn't, I couldn't even get my head around it. I kept thinking, I must be misunderstood. I must not be hearing this right at 4.30 in the morning. The next day I woke up and I still thought, no, 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 no. Even as I put on my black suit to attend Friday, I only wear that for funerals. This is supposed to be someone's father, mother, grandfather. I'm not supposed to be putting this on for Kara Hanks at 44. What? I've spent seven days, seven nights struggling to process it. So if you have two, welcome, you're not alone. There's not something wrong with you. I don't have a category to put this in. If that's how you felt, I don't know how to connect all the dots of what I said I believed. If that's how you felt, that is extreme mental distress. And I want you to know, it's okay to have all that going on while you still hold on to God and say, I do not understand I have so many questions. And my emotions are all over the place. But I trust you. Like Peter said, to, to, you know, when, when someone said, when Jesus said, are you two going to go away? They said, where can we go? Where, where can we go? You have the very words of life. So can you trust God in the midst of extreme mental distress? Yes, you can. Because Job shows us that you can have anguished trust. We don't usually bump those two words up together. Anguished trust. But the book of Job shows us more than one face of faith. So here's what I want you to understand. When you're in the midst of intense suffering, dark, shattering, it is okay and very normal. In fact, I would be more concerned about those of you that are like, no, I haven't, I haven't felt any of that. Something's wrong with you. You're the one that needs help. You can have emotions and doubts 
and fears and questions and confusions swirling around your anguished trust. Too many Christians think that trust and faith requires us to deny the raging feelings we have. Oh, but stay with me. And to make sure that none of it ever reaches our lips or gets expressed. But that's not what you see from Job. The reason this book, you guys, is 42 chapters long is because the Holy Spirit chose to capture and record forevermore for us so much of what made it to his lips and got expressed. Oh, it made it to his lips and it definitely got expressed. Here's what I want you to understand. The confusion, the questions, the emotions made it to his lips and got expressed. It just never ruled his life. And you are more likely, listen, because here's what we need right now as a church family. You're more likely to not see this rule your life if you will give yourself permission. And if you're a loved one or friend or church family sitting there, oh, please give them permission to express it. It's more likely to not rule your life moving forward if it does get expressed. If you push it down inside, if you try to pretend it's not there, if you choose to bottle it up, you will not do well. Our God gives us permission and even invites us to express it. To express it. Anguished trust. And that's why this book of Job is not one-off. Like, okay, we don't have any other place like that in the Bible, so maybe that's not what we're supposed to do. Oh, you guys. 53 of the 150 psalms are psalms of lament. Dark psalms of lament. That when you read them, so many of them, you're like, Can you say that? Is it okay to say that? Yes. 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 To give voice to the emotions and confusion and fears and doubts. But understand, the psalmist in every instance is bringing it to God and saying it to God, not running away from God. You bring it to God. You bring it to God. You bring it to God. That's what Job is doing, and that's what you see in the Psalms of Lament. Look at it in chapter 3. Jump over to chapter 3 in Job. Look at it in chapter 3, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. You understand what he's saying? Job is saying exactly 
what so often is our first response to shattering circumstances. I don't want to be here. I don't want to go through this. I want to close my eyes and have it all go away. I wish I'd never been born. So I wouldn't even have to process or work my way through this level of pain. It's just too painful. A woman in our church watched the grief of her brother when her nephew took his own life. It's been almost 15 years ago now. And while the parents love God dearly and have hope in God, the father wrote a small booklet that describes the persistent grief that you feel that is so inescapable when you've been shattered. He says this, grief is a persistent little man wearing a black top hat and a rumpled jacket. You wake up in the morning and he's sitting on your sofa. You go to the office and he rides next to you in your car. You travel, but find that he likes traveling with you. You get home after a hard day only to find that he's still sitting on your sofa. The next day is exactly like the last. You can't escape him. Some days he's quieter, smaller, less obtrusive than others. But make no mistake, he's always there. Here's what I want to bring you as a church family. For yourself, but especially the Glens, the Hanks, those, those that have been touched and impacted most. You realize they will continue on some level to grieve until Jesus returns or takes them home. There isn't, oh, when they get over this. They're not going to get over this. They're going to persevere through this. But one of the best things you could do is recognize there they will walk to a certain degree with a limp from this day forward. They're human. They're but dust. God will give grace. God will be with them. But no one here should expect them to get over it. God will use it. God will use them. God will help them. That little man in the top hat with the rumble coat. To some degree, he's smaller certain days and quieter. But there'll be a song they hear. There'll be a scene. There'll be something that reminds them of Kara, right? They got to keep living. That will bring tears again. That will bring the sharp pain again. And one of the best things we could do that I've learned as a pastor is not pretend that Kara never lived. Don't be afraid to mention her to them. Oh yes, they may cry. They may tear up when you do it. Do you know what's worse? Pretending she never lived. Oh, unless they tell you differently, I invite you to say things to them. Oh, that reminded me of Kara. When I saw, oh, I heard her in my head the other day. Oh yeah, they may cry. Kara lived. Kara touched us. Kara was married to Ben. Kara was the daughter of Pat and Pam. Kara, it is okay, in fact, please keep talking about how God used her when you think of her. And please remember 
They've never stopped thinking about her. I usually mark my calendar for people who have this kind of loss. And I reach out to them. I just did it last week. Someone who's Someone whose loved one died four years ago. Because I watched the body of Christ be like on steroids amazing last week. But guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a settling effect. People go back to their jobs. People, one of the best things you could do is actually send a card. Take someone out to lunch four years from now, ten years from now, and talk about them. They lived. They touched lives. It was real. And we will see her again. So let's not ever stop thinking about her now. Let's not be startled and say, oh yeah, Kara. Let's live in a way that we recognize that we're not afraid of the pain or the awkwardness of acknowledging Because here's the thing, grief is always there with us, with them to some degree. It's just not bigger than the God who is with us. We want to hold on to both. Both. He's bigger. We can hold on to and still talk about it because he's with us. Our our Savior, in fact, if you go to Isaiah 53, don't for the sake of time now. Do you realize this is the kind of Savior we have? This is what Christianity has that's so different than other world, world religions. A man of, say it, sorrows and acquainted with grief. We often hope that someone who's talking to us over coffee or lunch would get it. And we're we're often disappointed. Sometimes people say terrible things. I know they mean well. Guess what? Your Savior gets it. And he'll never say a terrible thing to you. Oh, run to him. Sit at his feet. Hold on to him. Listen to him. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And he sits with you on the ash heap. He sits with you in the darkness. He's there. He has not pulled back. You can see some of this ongoing just sighing in the emotions in Job. Jump down to verse 24 of chapter 3. For my sighing comes instead of my bread. My groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes to me. You hear all that he's describing? Sighing, groaning, no peace, no quiet, no rest. So what does Job do with this kind of raging turmoil? Jump to chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. He does what I'm inviting you to do. He does what I'm pleading with you to do. He does it. Look at it in Job 7, verse 11. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish 
of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I the sea or a sea monster that you set a guard over me? When I said my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that I would choose strangling and death rather than my bones. I loathe my life. I will not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are a breath. Now that's gritty, raw, and real. But he's saying it all to God. He's talking to God. This is what a lament is. You talk to God about the trouble he's allowed into your life. You don't run from him. You go to him and you talk to him because Job is doing exactly what we tend to do. He's struggling with God's hand in all of this, but he's taking his complaint directly to God, not away from God. But finally, in the midst of shattering circumstances, number three, oh, we have to remember what matters most that cannot be taken from us despite the darkness. And this is where, oh, this is a long, wandering, dark, messy book. But oh, there's a diamond of hope that stands out in the midst of this dark book. In Job 19, Job says something quite amazing, you guys, and I've printed it in your bulletin, but we're going to show it on the screen. And it's even more amazing when you consider how little the people during Job's day, how little they understood about the future hope of resurrection. They had some verses in Daniel and places about Oh, we have so much more. We live on this side of the cross and resurrection and ascension. But this is Job reaching down deep and laying hold of a diamond of hope. Say it with me. Let's read it together. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. It's a magnificent burst of faith. He reaches down deep. And lays hold of what matters most and reaffirms what he really believes, even when his world is crumbling around him. Stand and read it together with me again. Stand. And by faith, despite your emotions, questions, doubts, concerns, say it again. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed at the thought. You may be seated. As I close... 
I want you to notice he's not saying, I feel it. He's already told us what he feels, and it's ugly and awful. He's not saying, I feel it. He says, I know it. I don't feel it. I don't see it, but I know it. And so here's what I would say. In the dark, do not doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. Do not doubt in the dark what you knew to be true in the light. Sometimes we think, but I'm not having warm, happy feelings around what I knew now. Doesn't matter. I'm not seeing things that line up with what I knew. Nope. I know. Because it's based on God's word. I know. I know. He's talking about his Savior, not just some kind of positive thinking. His hope is in a person, and that person has a name Jesus Christ. My Redeemer. My Redeemer. My Redeemer. So, what about you this morning? Oh, I've been praying for people here today, people at all three campuses. I've been praying. For those of you that have heard the gospel, you grew up in a Christian home or you've had a friend share it with you. You've been attending and you've heard it. You do not lack for understanding the knowledge of the gospel. But you've been guilty of saying, I can deal with that later. I'll just push that off later in my life. I'll I'll consider that. You've never made a decision, a choice, to give your life to Christ. Oh, my friend, one thing this past week has showed us is you might not have later. Oh, Come to Christ today. Put your trust in Christ today. Give your life to Christ. Accept this free offer of the gospel. It's absolutely free. Absolutely free. Oh, and for those of you who know the Lord, Christians, I want you to know you can come to God as you are. Filled with emotions all over the place, questions, doubts, confusion. Please don't wait. Do not hang back thinking, I've got to get it together first. He won't accept me. Oh, no, no. You'll probably never get it together until you fall into his arms with your fears and doubts and emotions. He will accept your anguished trust and he will hold on to you and love you in the dark. God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for direct access to your throne. And thank you for each other. All of this, all, all of this has been amplified and on display these past seven days and nights. Oh, where would we be without your spirit? 
without direct access to your throne, without the word of God alive to us, and without the people of God around us, we are broken hearted. We are shattered. But we are looking to you. Our eyes are fixed on you. We are coming to you. And we are holding on to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.